There's a uh, pretty common joke you hear in pastoral circles, um, which is that when you have to preach about something like hell or sex or money, have someone else do it. So <laughs> that's not the case for Jeremy. I volunteered. Um, and if you want to hear what is going to happen at the end of time, that's next week. We will finish our series in Revelation 22 next week. But for today, we're in Philippians chapter 4. And I, I, I asked for uh, two reasons. One is because I think it can be helpful to not have your pastor preach on giving for the reason that, like, I, I think it gets rid of any kind of um, strange or awkwardness surrounding, like, I don't gain, uh, I don't benefit financially from your, from your generosity. I, I benefit from your generosity and you from mine and us from each other. That, we're going to see that in this passage today. But I think, I was like, Jeremy, let me preach it so you know, people don't just think you want a new jet ski or something. And uh, the second is just my, my heart for how we view generosity to be shaped more by the gospel and God himself than by culture. I say this knowing that like four years ago, a small group of people gathered to plant a church called Gospel Life Church to reach our friends who were skeptical of the claims of Christianity, skeptical of Jesus, our co-workers, our family members who didn't yet know him. And so even as we think through as a church how we talk about giving, how giving takes place uh, at our church, we think of like, okay, how will a skeptical person interact with this? And we know that like finances can be something of like a hurdle for people who don't know Jesus, uh, to come into a church, and it's always like, it's like a running joke, okay, you're, you're going to bring your friend from work, and that's the Sunday they'll be talking about giving, you know? <laughs> and there's a lot of visitors here today, so it's whatever. <laughs> I was like, I know because I saw people come in that I didn't recognize, I saw that my favorite donuts were taken and no one asked me, and I saw that there weren't enough bulletins uh, when I... So I had to, you know, just, I'm glad you sang familiar songs, Matthew and Ben. All that to say is I'm grateful that I get to share about this today, and I pray you'll give me grace as I do. <clears throat> Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a quick walkthrough of chapter 4 of Philippians. I'm going to briefly run us through it, just so we have greater context. The problem with doing a one-off sermon like this is that we haven't been preaching through this book. We don't know all the context, so I'm going to do that quickly so we can understand um, it as its original hearers would. And then we're going to ask two questions. Pretty simple questions, pretty straightforward. How should we give and why should we give? How should we give and why should we give? First, let's walk through the text together, starting in verse 10 of chapter 4. <clears throat> the context of this passage is that Paul is writing to a church that he planted. He planted this church about 10 years earlier. Now he's in prison, and he's writing to them. We can know more about the church in Philippi by starting with the book of Acts. 
If you remember, Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, we celebrate this at Good Friday and Easter, then Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles, and they are sent out to begin the church, right? To plant churches and bring the gospel to the nations, to start fulfilling the Great Commission. And uh, one of the, the majority of the book of Acts is just following Paul along as he goes through his missionary journeys, planting churches city to city. So we see in the book of Acts, he goes to the region of Macedonia. Keep that in your mind. That's the region of Macedonia. And, this is, and he goes to different cities, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. In Philippi, he gets beat up, which is not uncommon in his missionary journeys. But a church is planted as the gospel is proclaimed and believed by the people there. Okay? So, he goes to them, he brings the gospel to them, and then he continues on planting churches. So he's no longer in Philippi. And what we have when we read the book of Philippians is a letter that he writes to them about a decade after he originally set foot at their doorstep. Verse 14, uh, verse 10, sorry. He, he starts his passage and he shares that he is joyful because the church has revived their concern for him. We're going to see this in the context later on. What he means by revived their concern for him is that they sent him a gift. Uh, it no doubt included uh, financial gift. And then in verse 11 and 12, and this might seem a little strange to us, he says, I'm really glad you gave me a gift. Not that I care much about the gift. <laughs> you can imagine getting a present from someone and, uh, and you respond, oh, I'm so glad you gave me a present. Don't really care that much about the present. I could do without the present. If you didn't send the present, that's fine. But this is what, <laughs> this is what Paul does. He wants people to know that his truest and deepest treasure is not the gift that they give him. It is in Christ. And so in 11 and 12, he downplays the importance of the gift because he has discovered the secret of contentment. With or without the gift, he's okay. And then we come to verse 13, which is like the number one sports passage in the Bible. Okay? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what I say to myself when I go to the weight room. <laughs> And then I learned that I'm reading it out of context because it doesn't work that way. But it doesn't, have, it doesn't have as much to do with home runs and touchdowns as it has to do with enduring whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So Paul says, I can be poor, I can be wealthy. I can be sick, I can be healthy. I can be in hardship or I can be in good times of plenty. Regardless, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words... Christ gives him the strength to endure all things, whatever he goes through, because he doesn't lose his greatest treasure, which is Jesus. And then we come to the core of our text today in verse 14. We're going to fly through this part. He writes, it was good for them to share in his trouble to help him. And this wasn't a one-time, ver uh, one-time gift as the, as the rest of the passage lays out for us. I like actually how the NIV uh, translates this section. He says in the beginning of the gospel, the NIV talks about it, when they first became acquainted with the gospel. When Paul showed up on the doorstep with the good news that they could find real salvation in who Jesus was and what he had done for them, this transformed their hearts to become partners with him. So they received the gospel from Paul and then they gave back to him out of their generosity. And they were the only church in Macedonia to do so. 
which is worth keeping in mind. It's possible for churches to receive this good news and for our hearts not to be transformed, to be generous. That's a real danger. But Paul says they began this giving and receiving partnership in verse 15. And then in verse 16, we see that this happened multiple times. They gave to him once again. Their generosity was making a difference for Paul. And then, once again, he wants to make sure they understand that he's not as overjoyed about the gift itself. Okay? Because in verse 17, he says, Not that I desire the gift, but more than this, he desires the fruit that increases to your credit. And then he says uh, they have not only given, but they've given plenty. He's well supplied. He has more than enough. And their gift is a good one. It's pleasing to God. It's good sacrifice. And they don't have to worry about their gift leading them to like some kind of um, poverty that they cannot overcome. Because he says, God will supply every need of yours to his riches according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then after saying all these things, you can just see Paul, he's written this letter, he's like, this is actually kind of incredible, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that even as we're generous and we give sacrificially and generously, we can be sure that God will continue to supply us at all of our needs. So he ends, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's appropriate. That's our walkthrough. I did that this way because now we're going to answer two questions, and the questions aren't just in order. It's not like Paul first answers the questions, how should we give, and then answers the question of why we should give. He kind of goes back and forth between answering the two like a tennis match. And so I wanted to walk us through the whole thing first, and now we're going to answer the first question, how should we give? How should we give? Amanda and I do not enjoy the same uh, genre of movies and television shows, okay? This is something that has sanctified us in marriage over the years. I like lawyer stories. She likes love stories. Okay? I like heists, a good bank robbery. She likes Hallmark. Okay? I like explosions. She likes exploring feelings in the form of Hallmark movies primarily. <laughs> She's teaching Sunday school, so she can't hear any of this. It's great. Uh, what does that have to do with this sermon? Okay, yes. So, one thing we do agree upon is the show West Wing. You know, West Wing, it's not on television anymore. Yes, it's amazing, right? It's, it, it follows the president and his staff uh, as they navigate years uh, leading the country from the Oval Office. It's from like the late 90s, early 2000s. We found that we both love this show, and that is a treasure to us. That is precious and rare in our marriage, that we both love the same thing. So we've watched it many times. And there is a scene that is both amazing and drives me crazy. And I don't think I would have thought of it, except that we watched it again for the ninth time just a couple weeks ago. So for context, the president is, in the show is like a genius, right? He's got a master's in theology. He's got a PhD in economics. He's this great guy, all right? In this show, this is, uh, there is a scene where he talks about the Old Testament law, okay? He is going to a reception for radio hosts, and in this reception, he comes across a, a lady who is not a fan of his administration. She's 
disrespectful. Actually, she kind of embodies this far-right-wing Christian radio host on the show. And he wants to teach her a lesson. So he goes to this reception, and in front of the whole group of her peers, he gives this speech. And it's so well-written. You guys, it's just like you're glued to the television as giving it. But in it, he, he points her out, and he's like, oh, you, you know, you, you study, you have advanced degrees in these, in, the, in these things. She's like, no. He's like, he starts to ask her sarcastic questions about the Old Testament to prove that her view is hypocritical. Um, in particular, he's upset that she calls homosexuality an abomination. And so, in order to prove this, he, he starts asking her these questions. He says things like, I'm looking to sell my uh, youngest daughter into slavery. She always clears the table after she eats. She keeps her room clean. What is a fair price that you think I can get? Or does the whole town have to have to be present when they stone my brother John for planting two different fields side by side? Or how about this one? Touching the skin of a pig. Leviticus 11, 7. See, I've watched this so many times. Okay. And he goes, the Washington Redskins, if they promise to all wear gloves, can they play football on Sunday? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? He really takes it to her and he leaves her speechless and the whole room is like, yes, crazy. It's amazing. It's really compelling television. It's really bad theology. He has an understanding that Christians, his criticism that Christians pick and choose what laws from the Old Testament we're going to obey today, right? The ones we're comfortable with, we'll obey. The ones we don't like, some kind of reason, we're going to get rid of those. We're going to ignore those, the ones about touching a pig's skin, for example. But when Jesus goes to the cross, this is where the president gets us wrong. He should have had an advisor like me. When Jesus goes to the cross, he fulfills the Old Testament law. So we don't read the, we don't read the Mosaic law, all the law that was given to the Israelites, to the people of Israel. We don't read that and then pick and choose the ones that we want to obey. We read that and we thank God for Jesus fulfilling that law in the Old Testament. So then how do we know which commands we should follow? Because some of the Old Testament commands we do follow, right? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. We know which ones we should follow because the New Testament, God gives us a new covenant by which he also gives us commands that affirm the ones we should still follow today. In other words, how do you know if you should follow an Old Testament command? Read the New Testament. Okay, that was a long way to talk about tithing. This is the controversial part of my sermon where Jeremy hopefully wore deodorant. Here we go. (laughs) I think it's worthwhile to say that tithing belongs to the Mosaic Covenant which Jesus fulfilled. Now, I say that tithing is this idea that you give 10%, okay? I say that because I'm convinced that the New Testament does not affirm that tithing is a command that, that is bearing on Christians today so that Christians should all give 10%. Gospel of Vision campaign. Um, here's why. 
You might say, well, what does this have to do with the text before us today? Tithing is not in this text today. And I would say that's what it has to do with our passage today. Tithing isn't in this text. It's also not in any other New Testament text where we are given an affirmation that this command remains for Christians today. Now, that doesn't mean that giving 10% to church, to missions, however you feel like you should give it, is not a good foundation. It only means that this is not a law by which we sin by not giving 10%. You might sin by giving 10% when you should be giving 20. You might sin by um, not being generous. But I don't know that tithing holds uh, the same moral weight that it did for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. First of all, because it's not found in the New Testament. Second of all, because even how we talk about tithing in Christianity today is not in line with the tithing that we found, find in the people of Israel. What I mean by that is like if, we, if you were convinced, I actually think that Christians should tithe today. You could take that position. Lots of Christians do. That's okay. Just like we have different positions on Revelation 20 that Jeremy's been sharing about. You could take different positions on this. But if you were to look at the tithe that was required of the Israelites, it wasn't 10%. It was 10% multiple times a year. So that, like, you know, people differ on their vary, but it's somewhere north of 20% that people should be giving. If you're going to hold to the Old Testament tithe as still relevant for Christians today to give. So broadly speaking, I think we've done a disservice when we talk about giving in terms of tithing. So if tithing's not required, what is? Look what verse, Paul says in, look what Paul says in verse 10. How, how should we give? How should we give? First point, we should give generously. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you, rev- you revived your concern for me. You were endure- indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. These Christians in Philippi couldn't wait to give. They couldn't wait. They're like, mi- they're like Midwesterners. On days like today, when you go outside, it's, it's finally getting close to 60 degrees and, and people are wearing t-shirts, people are wearing shorts. Matthew is wearing shorts today, okay? And the rest of the world looks at us like we are crazy. But we have been waiting, waiting, waiting to burst through this door, to take advantage of this opportunity where it doesn't hurt our skin to be outside, Okay? This is like the people in Philippi. They're waiting, waiting, waiting until they can burst through this opportunity, this gateway that was created for them to give to Paul. And they weren't just eager to, they weren't just, uh, eager to give. They were eager to give plenty. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They gave multiple times. In verse 18, he says, I'm well supplied. I have more than I need. How should we give? Generously. Number two, sacrificially. Verse 18 goes on. It doesn't just say I'm supplied and I have more than I need. It says that the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, And you can turn there now too. Actually, as you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is all worth reading in context of Philippians 4, I don't know if you've been following the updates with, uh, with Ukraine, but early on in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Elon Musk donated internet access to them, internet service, right? 
He part, we know he owns Tesla. He's billionaire owner of Tesla, but he also has Starlink, right? So he sends uh, hundreds of internet terminals to Ukraine and positions the satellite so that when Russia attacks their infrastructure, they would still have access to communicate via the internet, this, to get information about. It's important. That is a generous gift. It's not necessarily a sacrificial gift. I don't say this condemning what he did at all or in any way like criticizing. I would only say that when his net worth is northwards of $250 billion, his lifestyle didn't have to change for him to give this gift, right? He didn't have to sacrifice anything to send uh, this internet, Starlink terminals uh, to Ukraine. It was generous and it was good and it met a need. It's awesome. But there is a difference between generosity and sacrifice. There is a difference between generous giving and sacrificial giving. And I think it's helpful to understand the difference of the two. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of where? Macedonia. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. And Paul says, but as you excel, verse 7, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all these things, in all earnestness, in our, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. He says, look at the churches in Macedonia, how they give not just generously but sacrificially. I pray that you would excel in this grace as well. <clears throat> how should we? give we should give generously and we should sacrificially let me illustrate this really practically a man and i are going through our budget again you know so we take the things that we have to have uh we have to pay like our mortgage we and our utilities and my nba league pass subscription basic needs okay and then we think about like okay what what else do we want to spend money on we want to spend money on our kids development they're you know whatever, access to sports, we want to spend money on a vacation, whatever that is. We want to give to the church. We think about these things. Part of how we think about these things should also be, what do we want that we're willing to give up so that we can be more generous? It's a question we should ask ourselves when we think about what God has given us and how we might bless others with it. Another question would be like, if you get a raise, it doesn't matter if you're like 30 or 15 or 60 you get a raise what changes more your standard of living or your standard of giving a lot of christians want to be involved in giving but i would say most christians don't want to be involved in giving up things that they could have in order that they might give more we should give generously and we should give uh, sacrificially and finally we should give joyfully Verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice that you gave. In verse 18, God rejoices that they gave. The gift was pleasing to him. <clears throat> and if you continued reading in 2 Corinthians, you would come to chapter 9 and you would see each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice he doesn't say each one should give 10%. Just saying. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How should we give? Generously, sacrificially, joyfully. Why should we give? First of all, it benefits others. It's important for Paul to make this clear. If they hadn't given, he would be okay. Remember, he starts off the passage saying, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys gave. Also, if you didn't give, I would still be okay. I'd be, I'd be okay. Because he's got this kind of untouchable contentment that neither poverty nor riches can shake. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, if I was wealthy, I wouldn't be so discontent. That is not true in our human condition. But this generosity is like a billboard that tells Paul, you're not in it alone. These people love you. One of the reasons why we should give is because it benefits others. And this is straightforward. I'm not, it's like, oh, wow, Justin, that's not very profound. <laughs> it took you like two seconds to think of that. Yeah, but it's, it, it's not profound. But it is rare. It, it is rare. Okay, so America, year after year, finishes among the very top of countries in generosity both in the percentage of people that give and in how much the people that give, give. In America, in 2019, households gave an average of 1.1% to charity. 1.1%. In one of the wealthiest civilizations that's ever walked the face of the earth, this is the most generous one today is 1.1%. For comparison, during the Great Depression, America, American households gave 3.3%. So you can't like make the argument like, okay, well, once I get wealthy, then I'll be able to give. That is a good trick to play on yourself. We look back at our passage, Paul says he rejoices that they gave. He's not rejoicing so much for what they gave, or how much they gave, but that they gave. I'm so grateful that you have revived your concern for me. He's grateful that they gave. And if we're among one of the most generous nations in the world, and in the history of the world, then to me, that says that there's a uniquely selfish part of the human condition that we desperately need the gospel to demolish. Earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about how we should view others. It applies to our generosity. Chapter 2, he says, If you've received any encouragement from being united with Christ, in other words, if the gospel has encouraged you at all, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of mind. Verse 4, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Your generosity benefits others. That's one reason you should give. Another reason is that your generosity benefits yourself. Okay, I imagined preaching through this section and Jeremy's vein in his head starting to pop out as he grew concerned. He's already talked about tithing. Okay, that, that was bad enough. Now he's going to talk about the prosperity gospel. Our, our giving benefits ourselves, you know, like you should give because then the Lord will fill your bank account if you're generous. No. 
Though a couple Sundays ago, Kenzie was sick, I was playing on the living room floor, streaming Gospel Life Church, like a good Christian, and then the service ended and my smart TV uh, automatically switched back to antenna. And after 10 minutes, I realized I had been watching a Joel Osteen sermon for a while. So that was like, wow, okay. Could be worried. Um, And there's no doubt, but there's no doubt, there's no doubt, like sociologically, psychologically, that giving benefits ourselves, things that aren't in this passage, ways that giving benefits ourselves, okay? People are less stressed when they give. You can measure it. People, elderly people are less likely to die over a five-year span if they're volunteering their time to help someone else. That was a Harvard study done three years ago. In my field of youth ministry, in my field of youth ministry, one of the things that makes the greatest impact on whether kids walk with the Lord is how their parents spend and give money. It's, it, it rates far above most other factors. But this is not a sociology lecture, so how does our generosity benefit us according to this text? It does result in reward. And we see Paul talked like an, invest, an investor in, in this passage. In verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Any financial advisor worth their, worth their salt will tell you that you need to be saving for retirement, right? They will tell you that is a wise thing to do. You need to be investing so that you can have compound interest growing in the money that you save. I want you to think about a different kind of 401k, though. Only instead of the K referring to whatever a K stands for in 401k, what do you think about like 401 kingdom? This is what Paul is talking about as he... Uh, as he references the fruit that will increase to your account. He's saying there are dividends that will be paid out now when you give generously. It is is good for you. It is good for others. There is fruit that will be produced now. Not only that, there is account. there There is interest that is accruing in your account that at the end of time, when Jesus reveals the fruit of our lives. It won't just be a judgment of like, these people put their faith in Christ. These people did not. Heaven and hell. But we will also see in that day the value of how we spent our lives. So we will also see, did you do good with what I gave you? And Paul says, the gift of the Philippians will bring fruit to their account. It is an eschatological investment account. Matthew 19, Peter says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Classic Peter. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, though you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The return on investment in the kingdom is far greater than the S&P 500 can offer you. And I know, like, I'm not trying to make a one-size-fits-all approach to what we should give. 
I know I hear things like I can't afford to give. And I would push back and say, you cannot afford, you can't afford not to give. For your own heart, for the good of your own soul, for the fruit that is credited to your account, if it is $2 that you can give, then give $2 sacrificially and joyfully. And praise God that he's done a work in your heart. Because the, the matter of giving so that the gospel can go forward is too important and too urgent. But also the matter that our own hearts are not consumed by idolatry to money is too important to not give. Start giving when you're young, for those of you that are young. Start now. And we will praise God for the fruit that is credited to your account. And this brings us uh, to the third reason. This is brief. It's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God when we give. When we tell the truth, it's pleasing to God. Why? Because He is true. When we are kind, it's pleasing to God. Why? Because He is love. When we're patient with people who don't deserve it, that is pleasing to God. Why? Because He is patient. When we are generous, it is pleasing to God. Why? Because He is generous. This is the final reason. This is the most important reason. Why should you be generous? Because Jesus has been generous with you. Because God has been generous with you. How should we give like God gave to us? That's how. Why should we give? Because God gave to us. That's why. In other words, what should shape our hearts most when it comes to being generous with our time and with our money and with our talents and with everything that we have is God himself. That's what should shape us. How should you give? You should give generously. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. How should you give? Sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. How did God give? Joyfully. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame on your behalf. Why should we be people who give? Because God has given to us. How should we give? In the same ways that God has given to us, generously, sacrificially, and joyfully. And then we can trust that as we do this, what is true for the church in Philippi that Paul writes is true for us. That God, verse 19, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And when you meditate on that, that you can be extraordinarily generous with the gifts that God has given you. Because you know that he will provide for every need that you have according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, then I think like the response that Paul finishes the text with makes sense as our response. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let us be people who don't create hurdles for skeptics because of the way we talk about money, but we create opportunities for them to hear the gospel because of the way we use our money that we would be far more generous than those who haven't been given the gift of Christ, who have not received his mercy and the riches of his glory according to God.
every week, we remind ourselves of this generosity. Every week we come to the table and we take the bread and the wine. Why? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Proclaim my death until I come again. The table for communion together is collectively reminding ourselves of why we should give and how we should give because in it we remind ourselves of the greatest gift that was ever given. We remind ourselves of what God has done for us.